The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Just the same, Father. Good to see you. Yes, you too. Father, I uh, wanted to wish you a happy feast day before we begin the program tonight. The, <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Feast of St. John, John Vianney. That's right. The yeah. patron saint of parish priests. So I know it's a very special day for you and for Father Greenwell and all of our priests. So Yes. Well, we thank God day. for St. John Vianney. That's right. That's right. We need him. Yep. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the devil said about St. John Vianney that if there were two more priests like him, his, the devil's kingdom would be at, a, at an end. Uh, the good news is that uh, there was one such St. John Vianney. The bad news is there weren't two others, <laughs> two more. Although St. John, Bo John Bosco certainly come close, certainly yeah. qualified, I think. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we have a great patron in heaven, and we need him yes, right absolutely. now. Absolutely. Well, Father, we wanted to dedicate tonight's program to a very interesting topic. Um, we've had it on the docket for, uh, for a little while now. Um, I know you've... Uh, spent the last couple weeks with a very interesting new new book that has come out titled Murder in the 33rd Degree uh, by one Father Charles Theodore Murr. Uh, this Father Murr, he's, uh, he's an American priest born in, uh, I believe, St. Paul, Minnesota. He's um, served various roles in the Vatican for some time now. And uh, very interesting book, Father. He's given some very interesting interviews um, relating to this book. He covers a lot of topics in there, but I guess the, the main theme would be uh, the, the Freemasonic infiltration into the hierarchy of the, of the Novus Ordo Church. And um, there's a lot of really um, startling claims uh, made in the book. And uh, I guess to any traditional Catholic who has, who has been following the, these things in the Novus Ordo Church, I, I don't... Imagine that there's a whole lot that's uh, that's that's found to be too surprising in there, Father. But um, I imagine for for any Novus Ordo Catholic, there's a lot in there that they would find find very striking. But uh, I know, Father, as I said, you've had the book for a couple of weeks now. I know you've you've read through some of it. Um, what what was your your general impression of the book, Father? And I, I would ask, what um, did you find anything particularly striking in the book? Anything particularly mm. surprising? Well, Tom, with regard to what you just said, that you thought the traditional Catholics have been following the history since Vatican II and looking at all of the devastation that's come in, would not be too surprised by what uh, Father Moore reveals in the book, but the Novus Ordo people, especially conservative uh, Novus Ordo followers, <clears throat> might be very surprised by what's in the book. I think that the traditional Catholics who read the book those who know the score and, and, you know, realize something is gravely, gravely wrong with and after Vatican II, mm -hmm. I think they would read the book and say, well, this explains it. Yeah. This really uh, gives me a good understanding of why all of this has happened. Yeah. Um, they no doubt suspected <clears throat> it, but um, 
I think uh, Dr. Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, certainly gave them a good glimpse into the problem. But this book by Father Charles Murr, because he was a, a principal, I mean, he was right there on ground zero while all of this was going on in the Vatican. I think they find it very, very interesting. And uh, even confirmation of not only their, their thoughts and, and their, you know, how they explained to themselves what was happening, but also a confirmation of their worst fears, too, what was happening. Uh, but the Novus Ordo people who read this book uh, might find it rather startling. And, um, you know, a, a number of them might even find it rather confusing. They might wonder why it's such a problem having free, you know, bishops and cardinals who are Freemasons. Um, they might wonder um, uh, if that was a problem, why it wasn't dealt with, why wasn't it taken care of. Yeah. So there are a number of... The, the book generates, uh, actually, in my, in my estimation, generates a lot more questions than it answers. Um, it generates a lot of questions. Um, and perhaps we can get into some of that. You, you asked what I thought of the book. I thought it was uh, an important book um, that, it was, that it was written. I'm glad that Father Moore, after all these years, actually uh, wrote this book and published it. It's published just this year, 2022. Um, of course, Father Moore has appeared and talked, spoken about these things over the years, more so lately than early on. <clears throat> but um, he actually gives kind of a cast of actors, actor, I mean in the Latin sense, actores, uh, those who are actually involved in the caper of, um, of bringing the Masons in, um, having them consecrated and, uh, and created as cardinals in the new church, and uh, not only putting them in power, but actually expediting the damage of the church that they've come to do. That's their purpose. Their purpose was to come in and literally destroy the church from within. Um, so uh, Father Murr actually spells it out, and uh, he spells it out from a very, very special vantage point. You see, he was a confidant, a driver, and um, kind of protege of uh, Archbishop Edouard Gagnon. And uh, the Canadian uh, Archbishop Gagnon was actually commissioned by Paul VI at the recommendation of Cardinal Benelli uh, that uh, Paul VI actually commissioned uh, Cardinal, uh, at that time, Archbishop Gagnon, to investigate the Curia. The Curia essentially is the government of, um, of the church. Well, it's supposed to be, anyway. It's, it's the government of the, of the modern church now, of course, because the, the Curia was reconfigured re by Paul VI between 1964 and 1967 by an apostolic constitution. And Paul VI actually concentrated power in the hands of the Secretary of State. That was to prove, going to prove a fatal, fatal move because the Secretary of State became under Paul VI, Colonel Villot, V-I-L-L-O-T, Frenchman, who was a, a Freemason. And uh, if he wasn't the leader of the Freemasons in the church, he certainly had the most power of any one of them. 
as the Cardinal Secretary of State, after Paul VI gave that power to that position, the Secretary of State, and then made Vio the Secretary of State. Uh, he was the great nemesis of, Cardinal, of Archbishop Gagnon. Gagnon spent three years gathering information. And um, it was not a secret that he was investigating Freemasons in the Curia. In fact, um, he received death threats. He received, uh, well, I mean, his, his apartments, his private apartments were broken into. Yeah. Uh, his things ransacked, safe opened, things stolen from his safe. There were those who did not want his information to be made public. There were those who didn't even want it to be made, <laughs> to be presented before Paul VI. Um, and so they were determined to prevent that. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Archbishop Gagnon received death threats from before investigating Freemasons in the, in the hierarchy, not just in the hierarchy, but in the Curia, in the Vatican, it's kind of uh, a foretaste of what was to come later when Archbishop Viganon um, would be, well, basically going into hiding, fearing for his life. And it shows that he had reason to fear for his life. I mean, these people will kill you if you cross them. And um, in fact, the book Murder in the 33rd Degree is about that very subject and about one death in particular that he believes truly was murder. And, Ar and Archbishop Gagnon believed it too. A lot of other people mm -hmm. to this day still believe it. And that was the murder of John Paul I. So, um, I mean, Archbishop Gagnon spent three years working on this, and he finally completed the work. He investigated every member of the Curia, and he had three large volumes. Actually, one, one of those volumes was a little smaller because it was kind of an index. But with that, there were two large volumes of information, documentation, and so on. And uh, the question was, would he get to present that information? the fruit of his research, to Paul VI. And it was a battle. And the book is, uh, recounts the battle of trying to get past Cardinal Villon and trying to get past uh, Archbishop uh, uh, Casaroli, uh, Villon's right-hand man there, Secretary of State, and how they were desperately trying to keep uh, Gagnon away from Paul VI, so that they could not present the result of his, his, his investigations. Um, in the book, um, Father Murray even describes, and, and he describes this because uh, he's able to describe it very accurately, because he was the one who drove uh, Cardinal Gagnon, or at that time Archbishop Gagnon, to these meetings. He was a chauffeur. He drove him there, waited, and picked him up afterwards, and he got the full story. From Cardinal Gagn uh, Archbishop Gagnon himself. If I call him Cardinal Gagnon, he later did become Cardinal Gagnon, but there's a story behind that too. So if I do uh, slip and call him Cardinal Gagnon, please realize he wasn't yet Cardinal Gagnon when this is happening, but later on he did receive the Cardinal's hat. Um, but in any case, um, he relates, he, he recounts the story of his actually getting in past Villon. Vio to see Paul VI and to actually 
stand before him and put these volumes of research on his desk. And Colonel Vio and uh, Casseroli were standing right there, right behind Paul VI, and they were not going to leave. And um, Archbishop Gagnon had asked uh, urgently, insistently, for a private meeting with Paul VI. And Billon and Casseroli were not going to allow that. <clears throat> but Gagnon would not back down. He insisted on it right there before Paul VI. And eventually Paul VI told them to leave. And so uh, Gagnon finally did get his moment to present those three, the three years worth of work uh, which precipitated, as I say, death threats, burglaries against him, and so on. Mm -hmm. And he said that Paul VI <clears throat> took in what he had to say and basically took the volumes and pushed them back across the desk at him and said, you take these. <clears throat> he said that you'll have to present them to my successor. He an old man. Certainly. Uh, no doubt tired, certainly. Responsible personally for a lot that was in those volumes, too. And he would have known that, too. Because many of those names in those volumes who were identified as Freemasons were people he had appointed. <clears throat> but for whatever reason, uh, Paul VI ultimately <clears throat> just pushed those volumes back at Archbishop Gagnon and said, you take them. Like, I don't want them. Present them to my successor. Mm -hmm. Within two months, he was dead. But Father, Paul VI was, was the one himself who commissioned this, this study. So why, uh, why not accept the results of it? Do you think he was somehow surprised by, by what he saw there? He didn't expect it to be... You know, there, there's bad, a or? certain amount of speculation as to why Paul VI, who commissioned this study, would then basically put it on ice. Yeah. You know, say, show it to my successor. Yeah. Was it because... He was not concerned, or what? Um, some even would suggest that, well, he knew that there were Freemasons in the curial offices controlling the governing of the church, of the Nova Soto Church. And he, uh, and he thought the best thing would be to commission a Gagnon to investigate, find out what they knew, or what they could find out, almost as a means of protecting them. Because, I mean, it seemed at times that Paul VI essentially was on their side because he, he supported so much of what they actually did. I mean, even reconstructing the Curia to give the Vatican Secretary of State so much power. In other words, there are those who say that Paul VI was influenced, that he was a weak personality and that he was just influenced by them. Others say that he was sympathetic to the change agents of the Church. Uh, it seems to me that if Paul VI really was an out-and-out -out Freemason himself and commissioned this study just to kind of let everybody know we're taking care of it and then put it on ice, that rather than push those volumes back at Gagnon, he would have taken them and made them disappear yeah. in the bowels of the Vatican somewhere, yeah. the Vatican archives, <clears throat> that he would not have released them and said, take them to my successor. It just seems to me that way. But then, you know, the, when you read the book by Father Moore, you, you realize there's so much intrigue here. And uh, even those who were right there on the scene were puzzled by a lot of the things going on. So what about those of us who just are getting this information? 
you know, third, fourth hand, you know, yeah. at best. <clears throat> so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm even <laughs> qualified to have an opinion on the matter. It just seems strange. It certainly seems strange to Archbishop Gagnon. Yeah. He was so, he was so crushed by that because he was very concerned about the danger the church was in. <clears throat> and he, he was not desperate, of course, but he was very anxious that this be finally addressed, that this be taken care of. Um, and this is the response he got. And so Vio, Casaroli, and all of these, well, the, the men named in that portfolio there, or that, that dossier there, <clears throat> I should say, these men were still in power mm. when Paul VI died. And um, <clears throat> the death of Paul VI then precipitated, <clears throat> of course, another conclave. <clears throat> and the election of uh, Albino Luciani, became John Paul I, you know. <clears throat> According to Father Moore, or Don, Don Moore, because he has the title Don, um, it was Cardinal Benelli who <clears throat> might well have been elected after Paul VI because he had a lot of support among the cardinals. But he knew, ultimately, that he would not be elected. Um, he had actually been uh, assigned to the secretary, Secretariat of State, Benelli, until he, was, until he was sent to Florence. He was actually made the Cardinal Archbishop of Florence, which got him out of Rome. And from the, you know, you read the tone of things, you realize it might well have been V.O. who wanted to get rid of him. And that's how they get rid of somebody in the Vatican. They kick them upstairs. They assign them to another post, away from Rome. It lessens their power in the Curia. And so it looks like that was what was done with Benelli, that he was sent to Florence to kind of get him out of Vio's hair, as it were. Because <coughs> he was uh, kind of a watchdog over Vio as long as he was there. Now, now Father Moore makes it clear, and I, I think it is clear anyway, that Cardinal Benelli, <coughs> even though he opposed Masonry, and he didn't like these radical change agents in the church. He was truly a new order bishop cardinal. He was in agreement with the changes that came out of Vatican II. I mentioned the Apostolic Constitution by which Paul VI reordered the Curia and gave the Secretariat of State the great power. Yeah. Um, well, Cardinal Benelli was, was actually enlisted by Paul VI to help him bring that about. Because the idea was, in the, in the Curia, in the church, there was still the old guard who resisted the changes of Vatican II. And Paul VI wanted to break <clears throat> down that resistance. And that's why he changed the structure of the Curia. And uh, the, the idea was that he could actually overcome resistance in the Curia to the changes of Vatican II by restructuring it the way he did. And he looked upon Cardinal Benelli as a man who would help him do that. So Cardinal Benelli was not a traditionalist by any means, in the, in the sense of what we mean. He opposed the radical element within the Curia, but he was not opposed to the changes of Vatican II. It's kind of ironic, as, as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, my goodness, <clears throat> other seminarians that I actually visited, at least uh, Two other seminarians and I visited Cardinal Benelli in the Vatican while all of this was going on. We actually visited with him. We spent about half an hour to 45 minutes 
talking with him personally in the Vatican while all of this was going on. And we had no idea. You know, it's fascinating to read this. Uh, what must have been going on in the back of his mind <laughs> while we were actually uh, talking to him. Uh, things go well, I'm talking back in the, in the early 1970s. Yeah. Um, or mid-1970s. So, uh, so anyway... Um, but he was not a, a traditionalist, uh, a traditional Catholic in the sense that he would oppose the changes of Vatican II. By the contrary, Paul VI thought he would be an ally in, in getting them through, especially over, overcoming opposition within the Curia. But there was this um, very sharp division between the radicals uh, who were pursuing, wanted the Vatican to pursue a kind of a... Uh, a combination of communism, like the Ostpolitik and so on, uh, they saw that as dangerous. They saw various, um, well, what, what they would identify was actually Cardinal Staffa and Cardinal Odi, who uh, first brought to the attention of Paul VI and uh, Archbishop Gagnon the presence of Freemasons, yeah. Freemasonic operatives within the Curia, within the hierarchy. And it was that tip-off, as it were, what, what evidence Cardinal Odi and Cardinal Staffa brought forward, what, what precipitated Paul VI to actually commission Gagnon to make that investigation. Right. Um, so but you saw what, what came of it, finally. You know? Paul VI, I think, personally, from what little I know about it, but from what I do know, it all seems to point to the fact that he was just a kind of a weak, weak person and, and very... Um, Easily influenced. <clears throat> in fact, there was an article in um, what was it uh, one of the French uh, traditional Catholic publications that actually quoted Paul VI after he he, he um, produced the New Order and uh, and you know put out Missale Romanum. He, uh, he talked about the Novus Ordo and he said we were going to put this into effect. <clears throat> they quoted Paul VI as commenting on his implementation of the New Order. And that quotation from Paul VI is not only pathetic, but it certainly gives reason to believe he really was very weak. Just very weak and, and pliable. And uh, because the quotation, again, I can't remember exactly in French, but I can tell you exactly the sense of it. And that was, we hope that this production of this new, order, new rite of mass, he says, will bring to an, an end this period of experimentation which took place often against our will. Against our will, he said. The period of experimentation, liturgical experimentation, he says, it happened against our will, which is kind of an admission of weakness. And now he's hoping that by conceding this, <laughs> it will actually satisfy them enough so they'll stop doing all of it. You know, freelancing, freelancing. Yeah. Well, uh, this was a quotation, actually, attributed to Paul VI. Um, and it's, um, I'd, I'd say it's quite reliable. Mm -hmm. But uh, I have it somewhere. I can actually find it if anybody's interested. But um, he, here you have the situation where Cardinal Benelli now, as I say, he was not a traditionalist in the sense of liturgically and and, uh, you know, in terms of pastorally and so on. 
Paul VI had died, he really wanted someone else elected. He, he um, lit upon Luci uh, Albino Luciani. And according to Father Moore, um, Cardinal Vanelli really wanted uh, Luciani to be chosen, and he was. And he was elected. And that was considered to be uh, an indication of the influence and the power that Cardinal Vanelli had at the time. And uh, you know the story of what happened. Right. Um, Father, for, for what it's worth, I think um, Father, Father Murr, he, he has the same impression of, uh, of Paul VI that he, uh, I think, essentially says he was a very good man, but perhaps he was very weak. Okay. Um, so it seems that he, he has maybe the same impression. Um, you you saw that, uh, heard that in some of the interviews he gave? Mm -hmm. that right? Yes, yes, Father. Yeah, he, he's given many interviews on the book, um, and that, that seemed to be. be. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, I, I think that was kind of his general impression of every Novus Ordo pontiff, um, yeah. maybe not so much about Francis, but all the other ones. He, yeah, I think uh, even uh, John Paul II, and, and uh, he, he was, I think he said with John Paul II, he has no doubt he has a saint. He was a very saintly, very good man, but perhaps he's a very, very bad pope, but um, mm -hmm. he's a very good man, no doubt that he's a saint. So that seems to be his general. <clears throat> general impression with them, but... Uh, yeah, well, it was a bad pope. It's kind of the, the absentee pope, he kind of... He makes that point, um, yes, that he, he spent more time traveling and... Traveling and <laughs> yeah. doing the, uh, like this, the Rick Steves version yeah. of papacy, <laughs> yes, sort of. Yeah. Uh, while Vio and Casaroli ran the Vatican. Yeah, exactly. You know? well, of course, exactly. Uh, Vio died. Uh, yeah. um, actually, I don't think, I'm like 70, 79, I think. Mm -hmm. But Casaroli succeeded. Yeah, but and uh, yeah, and basically the the, the uh, foxes were were running the hen house at that point. Yes, he says the uh, uses the expression the uh, the uh, the the mice will will play when the, oh. when the cats away or something. But but he says these were not mice; these were rats. These were rats. These were rats. But the mercy. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. Um, verbatim. But but finally, to, to get back to, to something you uh, recounting the story of the. Uh, the three-year study um, that uh, that Archbishop Gagnon gives to Paul VI, he pushes it back to him. He say, you know, a lot of the, the things that, that took place there were very puzzling. Um, perhaps that's so, but maybe the, the main uh, point here that we shouldn't lose sight of is that he had three volumes worth of information mm -hmm. on the Freemasonic infiltration into the church. I, I don't that want he that. had asked for that, that politics had asked for, but I, I don't want that to be kind of uh, kind of kind of glossed over, just just slightly um, done away with. I mean, it, just just that that statement that's rather, I mean, striking, rather startling, right? That he has there was so much there, there was enough information that he could spend three years researching this mm -hmm. and come up with three volumes worth um, of this information. That's rather striking, right? That, that there was already that much infiltration that had, there that had taken uh, place. There was a lot of information in three years that he was able to find and probably uh, gained at great cost and great effort. It probably, it probably wasn't readily available over the counter. Mm -hmm. He had to dig for that. Mm -hmm. But imagine, imagine this, okay? Imagine if you had a Catholic Pope. He commissioned this work to be done. Because he was very concerned about the church, the welfare of the church, yeah. and the salvation of souls. Okay, So he finally gets the results put on the desk in front of him. <clears throat> he's old, he's tired, he yeah. thinks he's going to die. He knows that many of those named there, as enemies of the church, enemies of the faith, enemies of Christ, are people he put in place. Yeah. <clears throat> what do you think a Catholic pope 
would, would be, what would be going through the mind of a Catholic Pope when now he has the goods? He's going to be facing Almighty God, our Lord Jesus Christ, in judgment very soon. What do you think would be the first and most important thing on his mind at that point? Well, rectifying this problem before he goes to his judgment. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd think that with the priority in his mind, I cannot leave things this way. Yeah. I cannot leave the church this way. I cannot relinquish the papacy. I cannot stand before our Lord in this condition, leaving the church in this condition. I can't do it. I'd be terrified to do it. So you'd, you'd think, you'd think, you'd think, wouldn't you? That that would be the foremost in his mind saying, oh, thank goodness, now I can actually act upon this and I can make things right. At least I have now an opportunity to make things right. Mm -hmm. No, nothing. Pathetic. Tragic, certainly. Yeah. Right? Tragic. <clears throat> Show this to my successor. But who did he expect his successor to be if he was being told that in the Curia and among the Cardinals you had so many Masons? Yeah. Who did he expect it to be? As it turns out, it was Albino Luciani, who was more of the mind of a Benelli than he was of the mind of a Casaroli or a Leo. <clears throat> and, you know, that's, that's another, the next great part of the book that he's building up to. Yeah. And that is that he finally manages to get past Vio again to present his, the fruits of his research and put it on the desk in front of John Paul I. I mean, the very fact that John Paul I, Luciani, chose the name John Paul I was a declaration that he's following the line yes. of the council. Yes. Okay, like Vanelli. Yep. <clears throat> but um, the account uh, from Archbishop Gagnon, now uh, presenting the fruits of his research to John Paul I, are in stark contrast to the reception he got from Paul VI. So that's a very interesting, the second episode of presenting this information <clears throat> to John Paul uh, the, the first, um, again, w was very interesting, but John Paul the first reacted, Luciani reacted very differently. Uh, Luciani was, was actually horrified. You got the impression that he was just overcome with this idea that uh, <clears throat> we have Freemasons like Sebastian Baggio. Yeah in charge of choosing the bishops of the world yeah. uh, for 11 years of his life. I mean, he had like basically free reign to have the dossiers and all of those who were candidates to be bishops in the world, right? And uh, actually, there, there's a, a little passage from the book that I thought was kind of interesting, an interesting, interesting enough to read here. Um, <clears throat> Again, this is now uh, Archbishop Gagnon before Luciani, John Paul I. And they're talking about this uh, Anabale, uh, they're talking rather about Sebastiano Baggio. Okay? He says, as for Cardinal Baggio, Your Holiness, Gagnon pushed forward. Here you have another very dangerous man championing Masonic ideals. No, no, Holy Father. Gagnon made an abrupt stop. Not a very dangerous man championing Masonic ideals. Not as the evidence demonstrates. A bishop who, because of his association with Freemasonry, is de facto excommunicated, and he continues 
And he continues to vet and nominate every Catholic bishop in the world. That's what, that's what Gagnon reported to Father Moore, Don Moore, that he said. The gravity of allowing, this is Father Moore's uh, commentary now, the gravity of allowing Sebastianos Baggio, Cardinal and Freemason, to continue as prefect of the sacred congregation for bishops was simply and completely intolerable. Almost single-handedly, Brother Sebastiano, as he was addressed in the documentation, had chosen Catholic leaders worldwide since 1973. So he goes on to uh, give you an account of um, Luciani's reaction to this. Well, Luciani, as it turns out, called Baggio subsequently. And he said, I have to see you today, today. And Baggio said, well, can I wait till tomorrow? I'm busy. Man. <laughs> <clears throat> I think you have a description of him in the, in the obituary, Baggio, right? Yeah. Uh, but he had the nerve to say, hey, I'm busy. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Yes. John Paul I said, no, not tomorrow. Yeah. I'll see you later today. He said, well, my appointments will go late. And Luciani said, well, however late they go, I demand that you come and see me today. Stand before me. Come to my office. In the, you know, in the paper. I guess it was. He, he said, you must come and see me today. And at 8 o'clock that night, Sebastiano Baggio, Cardinal Baggio, showed up at, at Luciani's door to keep that summons, you know. And what happened next was very interesting. But... Um, you mentioned um, that you you saw an obituary in a in a, uh, a British. It was in the Independent newspaper, the, the Independent. Yeah. Right? Yes, the British. Yeah. What, what did it say about Baggio? This is the obituary after he died, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it says several things, of but uh, it, yeah, of it says that he was described as affable, smiling, squat, and somewhat worldly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that was good. Um, it also said that. Uh, Though Baggio always insisted that he was not the bishop maker he proposed while the Pope alone disposed, he did, in, he did uh, in effect have considerable powers of patronage. He had immense knowledge of the dossiers of possible candidates and knew their weaknesses for drink or women. Very interesting. That's a very interesting take, isn't yes. it? A secular yes. newspaper. Yes. He had dossiers in them. He knew their weaknesses. Yes. So... That's how Freemasons control. Yeah. You know? And he said he wasn't the, pope, the bishop maker. He said, oh, I just propose and the Pope disposes. Yeah. But guess what? If you have a weak man like Paul VI or others, you have the control. Yeah. But anyway, that even became worse under Casaroli. Uh, under Casaroli, they actually had uh, offices uh, dedicated to precisely the selection of bishops. While John Paul was traipsing all over the world. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, that's, that's according to Marini, who was an associate of Father, uh, uh, Father Moore. But uh, in any case, um, the, the arrival at Baggio in the office of John Paul I uh, is recounted here also. And um, that was a private meeting. But the Swiss guards who were stationed at the door did speak about it afterwards. And they said, during the hour-long meeting, 
there was the voice of Baggio that was raised shouting at Luciani, shouting at John Paul I. See, Luciani was going to send um, Baggio to Venice as the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice. As I mentioned, that's how they get people out of Rome. Kind of put them on ice a little bit. Um, They tried that with Paul VI, Montini, uh, Montini, Mm -hmm. uh, by getting him out of the Vatican. He he was actually the substituto and the Secretary of State himself under under uh, Pius the Twelfth, and it was found that uh, that um, Montini could not be trusted. He was actually in secret communications with Moscow you know, at the time. Uh, this was discovered through various diplomats who reported it to Pius the Twelfth, and so they said, "What are we going to do with Montini now? He's a problem. Here he is working in the Secretary of State. Well, I know we'll make him the Archbishop of Milan." Well, what that set him up for was becoming a cardinal and becoming the next uh, Novus Ordo Pontiff. So the system doesn't work very well, I think, lately. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, shipping Benelli off to Florence to get him out of the hair of Vio. Uh, Prior to that, sending Montini off to to Milano to put him on ice, and he becomes, under, under John XXIII, a cardinal, a Novosur cardinal, and returns as Paul, Pope Paul VI. And uh, then now trying to send Casseroli, or I'm sorry, Vio, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, what am I saying? Baggio, Baggio, off to Venice as cardinal patriarch. That would seem like a real promotion, but Baggio knew that it would take away his power. And so he was, in, he was not going to go. And he told, according to Father Murray, he told... Um, he told John Paul I that, no, he wasn't going to go. He wasn't going to take it. It's just all, there was nothing to it. He wasn't going to do it. And, uh, you know, it was that very night after that meeting between Baggio. <clears throat> it sounds like a badger, actually, the name. I mean, he sounds like a, a human badger. <clears throat> uh, so tenacious. It was later on that night that... Uh, well, by dawn that morning, uh, John Paul I was dead. And um, Father Mur, Don Murr describes uh, the news coming to him in his residence, where he was in residence in Rome, the Le- I think it was the Lebanese uh, installation there. Um, anyway, <clears throat> uh, he said that, um, I mean, they were all kind of in a state of shock. And, uh, and the first reaction was he was murdered. He was murdered. They murdered him. They killed him. But the word was already, the official word was getting out that he died peacefully in his sleep, in his bed, holding in his hands a copy of The Imitation of Christ. And this is very idyllic way of passing, right? But uh, Archbishop Gagnon said that that's the last thing that happened. Now we know for sure that that did not happen. That there are different ways of killing a man. Gagnon at least said he didn't think that he had been um, murdered outright, but he said you can so put a man under so much stress that he has a heart attack or something. He was even then giving them the benefit of the doubt, but he said it still amounts to killing a man. Mm. But uh, uh, there was a, a dear lady, a convert in one of our 
chapels early on. And um, a very, I'd say, noble and dignified woman, uh, a true Catholic lady, convert. Um, <clears throat> the man she married was not a Catholic, and he was not at all favorable to Catholicism when she married him. But his businesses took him to Rome, and he had dealings with Rome, and I think he had dealings in the Vatican even. But uh, she said that while they were in Rome, they made friends with uh, people who were actually working in the Vatican city-state, that they lived in the Vatican city-state, because that was their employment there. And she said that um, after John Paul I was found dead, um, the friends she had in Vatican City told her what had happened that night. And one man in particular, again, who had become a personal friend of this dear lady and her, and her husband, um, said that in the wee hours of the morning, still dark, he heard the rush of footsteps outside on the pavement and the, on, the, on the cobblestones up there. And he, uh, he leaped up, it was very unusual, he threw on his robe and he, he actually saw people rushing by his door and he, and he, he joined them and ran, ran with them and they ran right up into the papal apartments. And he with them. And he said he saw right through the door and there was John Paul I um, curled up on the floor like he was in agony, like in the fetal position, and he was purple. And he said, this story they're telling you about him dying peacefully in bed with a copy of the Imitation of Christ in his hands, it's, it's absolutely not true. He was on the floor, and he looked like he, he had died um, very much in agony. And, and it was not a very peaceful death, clearly. It was a rather gruesome scene. They had the intention of covering it up. You know? So... Uh, subsequent to that, there was a book written by a man named David Yallop, Y-A-L-L-O-P, I believe. Um, and he claimed to be giving the story of the, basically, assassination of John Paul I, saying that he'd been uh, poisoned but with digitalis. Um, what adds to the intrigue here is that there was no autopsy done. And the man who had the power to uh, have the autopsy done or to refuse it was none other than the Secretary of State, Cardinal Vio. Strange. Under those circumstances, one month into it, uh, a newly elected pontiff dies suddenly with no indication of uh, ill health or anything of the kind after a very heated meeting when he's being basically verbally abused by Cardinal Baggio and no autopsy is done. Everyone thought that was very strange. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why the book is called Murder in the 33rd Degree. And he's alerting, alluding to the death of John Paul I and he's not making any bones about it. He considered it to be murder. But don't, don't you think, Father, that his, his view may be a little simplistic if he just says, you know, there, there are many ways of, of killing a person and he... Well, that was Archbishop Gagnon. Oh, uh, well, well... Father, Father, Father Murr 
Well, in the interview that I saw, he, been so he he seemed that he uh, he seemed that he uh, he ascribed to that to that as well, where he, he said there there are many ways of, of killing a man, and said uh, you know he had a weak heart, and uh, so you know verbally abusing him like this just caused him so much stress, it caused him to have a heart attack. So mm -hmm. there, you know it's, there's many ways of killing a man. He uses that phrase a lot, but but you, you would think you know after um, he's made aware of this this incredible amount of uh, the, the the Freemasons and and the, the Vatican there. Um, you would think someone could put two and two together, um, you know, if this, this is what the meeting was about, that he was, uh, you know, trying to maybe in some sense rectify this problem, do, do away with this. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Freemasons would have no problem um, carrying out some kind of murder like well, this. Well, I mean, uh, to, even, suspect it. to even add to that um, case, I mean, it was John Paul, it was John Paul the first intention to, to uh, recall Cardinal Benelli as the Secretary of State replaced Fio. Mm -hmm. And um, they weren't going to let that happen. Yeah. You know? So uh, all the more reason why he had to go, right? But also, uh, I think David Yallop uh, was talking about the, um, the revelations that had come to John Paul I concerning the Vatican finances and all the chicanery yeah. going on yeah. in the Vatican Bank. And um, that he was in, bent on reforming that, mm -hmm. and the Freemasons were not about to let that happen either. Yeah. You know that was their. Uh, well, I mean, they they mind that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> their intention was to bankrupt the Vatican. They were in the process of doing it, and um, it, it's actually Father Murr goes on to what happens next then, and. He presents the third attempt of uh, Archbishop Gagnon to present his documentation now to John Paul II, mm -hmm. okay? And, uh, and he tells, gives an account of the reception of John Paul II for Cardinal Gagnon and all of this, or Archbishop Gagnon and all of this research. And um, I, I guess really I mean, the impression I have from what he said there was that John Paul II just found it a little hard to... I don't, I don't know that he took it really very seriously. But the fact is that he... Cardinal V.O. died shortly thereafter. He died in 1979. And within a few months, who does John Paul II name as the new Cardinal Secretary of State but Casaroli? The right-hand henchman of Villon, a man named as a as a uh, Freemason in these documents, John Paul II actually did take these. He took these documents, so uh, he took them out of the possession of Cardinal Gun of Archbishop Gagnon, is what I recall from the book. Anyway, I could be wrong, but I, that's what I recall. And so it's not as though he didn't have the documents and couldn't look at them. And even the, the smaller volume that uh, Archbishop Gagnon gave was a bit of a summary of what was in the larger volume. So it wasn't really necessary, absolutely necessary, to read page by page through all the, both of the other volumes to know their contents. He actually summarized it very well in the smaller volume. So one could get an overview of the whole situation just by reading that smaller volume. But suddenly you see John Paul II, again, appointing and promoting men to positions of power who are named in the dossier as being bad actors.
and enemies of the church, enemies of faith, enemies of Christ. So, uh, and John Paul II, as you mentioned, Tom, Father Morris says that he was like the absentee pontiff, yeah. wanted to travel all over the world. And of course, the Masons in the Vatican thought this is the ticket because they were actually running, running the show. The greatest puzzle, puzzlement to me, though, is, uh, and there are a number of very puzzling things. Uh, for example, I mean, there's a certain thing about the, the book, I, 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 maybe I should mention it, but it just puzzles me. Uh, you know, Father uh, Don Moore definitely, definitely kind of revels in the Romanita. And he, he really likes the Roman life, and he, you know, he mentions it at every turn. Uh, you know, kind of, uh, I guess you would consider spicing up the book by giving little details of, little, of Roman life. And he, here he's in the middle of relating the, the, the news coming to him of, of John Paul I's death. No sooner had Cardinal uh, Archbishop Gagnon presented him with the evidence of Freemasons at work in the Curia, and uh, Luciani was actually taking steps to do something about it and confronted, even though it wasn't necessarily his temperament to do so. Confrontation was not his strong suit, but he was determined to confront Sebastiano Baggio, Cardinal Baggio, who was naming the bishops and had been for years <coughs> with this damning evidence. <coughs> And now that Archbishop Gagnon finally has succeeded, right, in getting someone to do something about this, that man is dead. And the news had come uh, to Don Murr in the middle of the night, and this is what he says. <clears throat> he says, a nightmare to be sure, Excellency, but not mine alone. The Holy Father is dead. Turn on Vatican Radio. Then in a Spanish aside, I told Edouard Gagnon, that's the Archbishop, that Mario Marini and I were in my room and that he should join us. Voy, he answered. Gagnon's on his way, I told Marini, as soon as I re-entered my room. Calling my Costa Rican friend aside, I asked him to go to the cafe around the corner to get four cafe lattes and cornetti. And I'm thinking, why, why is he telling us what he tells this, this friend to go order from the, next, you know, the cafe, the bar next door, um, and, and like four cafe lattes and cornetti for our breakfast? It just seems so, to me completely out of place. It, it's, it's things like that are smattered throughout the book, which I thought detracted from it. Personally, that's my own personal taste. Yeah. Others might say, oh, well, that's, that's kind of neat. That's kind of interesting or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. maybe just having lived in Rome, you know, I just find it, okay, that's nice. But you've just learned that your great champion who was going to save the church from the Freemasons has been, in your estimation, murdered. Because that's what's Father Moore, I think, that was Don Murray's original reaction anyway. Yeah. And he talks about what he's ordering for breakfast. I, 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 I'm sorry. I know he, Father Moore, Don Moore, is a, a very um, uh, good table companion, you know, and uh, mentions the restaurants they went to where they had their meetings and the service and the languages they spoke and so on. So you can tell that he, he actually 
what should I say, loves the, the, the Dolce Vita somewhat, you know? But uh, I don't know, I just found in the book that these things were distractions from the, the gravity of the material that he was, that he was yeah. giving here. Something else that I think is very, very important and um, that has to do, after, this is after the death of, uh, of uh, John Paul I. And again, this goes to the other extreme to show the gravity of the situation. This is quoting from the book on page 142. He says, My thoughts drifted from Baggio to Archbishop Bonini. There was common knowledge that his quote, promotion to Iran by Pope Paul had in fact meant dismissal and exile. And yet it was Pope Paul himself who had brought the liturgical expert, that's Bonini, back from exile. Anabali Bonini had served as an advisor during the pontificate of Pius XII, but, quote, good Pope John had sent him packing Papa Montini reinstated him, and then he allowed him to direct the implementation of the liturgical reforms mandated by the Council Fathers, reforms that went far beyond what they had asked for or imagined. I remembered vividly one very disturbing exchange I had with Monsignor Marini. I asked him, quote, in other words, the new Mass, the Novus Ordo, was created by a Freemason, an excommunicate, who, if he dies unrepentant, will appear before God already damned to hell. And he pointedly answered, no, not in other words, those are <laughs> the very words, he says. So, I mean, he's very pointed in some of the things he says here, that the Novus Ordo was the result of, the, of a Freemason working in the church, to corrupt the Catholic liturgy with the worship of the church. And the answer they gave is, yes, that's what happened. But they end the book and they offer no solutions. They offer no advice, no counsel, no solutions. They just say, well, you know, um, John Paul II um, was warned by Cardinal Gagnon and um, nothing really happened. Uh, Casaroli was made Secretary of State. Archbishop Gagnon went in. Uh, he didn't even go in the Vatican. He had he had Don Murr take his letter of recommendation of, of his letter of resignation to hand to to Villon. Mm -hmm. But Archbishop uh, Gagnon did not want to see that man or talk to him ever again. So he he had uh, uh, Don Murr, Charles Theodore Murr drive him to the Vatican, gave him the, the letter of resignation and, and instructed him to take it to and hand it to Cardinal Ville and then come back to the car and he was going to go to the airport and fly away. He was going to go back to Canada. He, he wanted out of there, which puzzled me because he'd been a fighter until that time. And it was like a letter of surrender. Yeah. Like, okay, you win. I'm out. I'm gone. Farewell. Whatever, you know. Yeah. And uh, I don't understand, you know, you think the church is in quasi-mortal danger. I mean, obviously, you know the church cannot be killed. But souls are in mortal danger, for which the church exists. exists. The reason that Christ 
establish the church was for the sake of the salvation of the souls, and the souls are in mortal danger and you know it, how could you do that? I, 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 don't, I don't understand the thinking there. But I hadn't been through what Cardinal Gagnon had been, Gagnon had been through. Uh, it just seems to me that, yes, we might be frustrated, but we can't just say, well, I'm, okay, never mind, I'm going home, I've had enough. Yeah. And I don't understand the reaction of, uh, let's say, Monsignor Marini, um, who actually uh, evidently at some point went to see um, the, uh, the historian. Who is the historian? Who is um, um, uh, Robert, Roberto uh, De Matei. Uh, he has a write-up, Apollo, being visited by this Monsignor Marini, who was a member of that group with Father Dunbar and uh, Archbishop Gagnon. And uh, Monsignor Marini came and, and spent quite a bit of time uh, letting Robert de Mattei, Mattei into the knowledge of, of what was going on there. And this was after Viola died, Casaroli was appointed. This is during John Paul II's uh, tenure. And, um, and so Roberto de Mattei actually talks about what he learned from Monsignor Marini very much in line uh, with what uh, we read in this book, Murder in the 33rd Degree, from Father Moore. Very much in line with it. I would say if there was any significant difference, it would be the prominence in what um, Monsignor Marini made of uh, Silvestrini, Cardinal Silvestrini figured prominently in the reports of Monsignor Marini to Robert de Mattei, Roberto de Mattei, uh, more so than his name appears in this book, which seems to concentrate on the machinations of Vio, Casaroli, uh, Baggio, Bonini, and so on. And yet, when you finish reading the book, I've, I found this intense sense of dissatisfaction that it's almost as though I mean the church is on fire and there's a conflagration going on Paul VI they say he actually cites that here says that through some crack in the sanctuary wall the smoke of Satan has filled the sanctuary mm. he says that that was Paul, what Paul VI was talking about no. the infiltration of the Freemasons filling the sanctuary and that's what he was concerned about when he commissioned uh, Archbishop Gagnon. But they left it this way. I mean, you, you haven't actually read the book. You've, you've seen the interviews. Of them. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't what impression it. do you get? Well, I haven't read all the book, but I, I've, I've read a little bit of it, and I, I did watch the interviews, and I think maybe Father Murray might, might answer the, the question to some extent, where um, in the end, very end of one of the full-length interviews that I watched, he said that, uh, you know, he spends... An hour, maybe an hour and a half um, outlining this problem about the Masons in the church. And, uh, you know, throughout the whole interview, he's kind of very jovial and lighthearted, it seems, kind of like you, you mentioned in the getting the same impression in the book. Well, at the end of the, of the interview, um, he says how, uh, you know, things are very bad. Things are very bad in the, in the Nova Sordo church. But uh, he's read ahead to the end of the book. And in the end of the book, we win. So... Uh, there's not really any need, to, any need to worry, and what we need to do, the, the main solution that he offers, the main thing that we need, to, we need to do is that we need to develop a sense of humor. We need to develop a sense of humor. 
and uh, that's how we're going to stay, uh -huh. stay, stay sane that's throughout the, that's this. That's the solution to it. So that, that, I think that might explain why he kind of comes off like this, that, that things are so bad and he realizes how bad they are. Um, maybe just, just feel so hopeless about it and that the only solution is See, that you just to me, you have to laugh about it. that is like an abject surrender. Oh, yes, absolutely. When he says he read ahead of the end of the book, he means the Bible, yeah. clearly, right? Yeah. And we win in the end. Yep. But what about the souls yeah. who are, that are being lost? Yeah. The souls who are losing their faith right now, yeah. the souls who are desperately trying to maintain their faith under these circumstances, they need their souls justified from sin and, and sanctified by God's grace. And he says that they recognize, this was Marini who said to Murr, no, not in other words, those are the very words yeah. that this Mason created this liturgy, yeah. this worship, and, and that everybody's including we ourselves, are actually in, in, daily engaged in. And it's the product of the Masons that we're trying to defeat. Yeah. That, does that make any sense at all to you? I, 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 it, it, just, it just amazes me. I, I, I can't process their reaction to this. It's as though they just say, oh, well, what are you going to do? Well, Father, that's, I think that's the only way that you can possibly stay in the Novus Ordo as if you live in some kind of um, cognitive fairyland like this where you kind of create these... Um, I, I, I guess so. I guess so, Tom. Uh, I mean, you can't reasonably stay. I mean, it's, it's not logical. It's not reasonable. He cannot admit all of these things, um, give all of this information, and then you cannot possibly do nothing about it and remain a part of this and continue taking part of this unless you have some kind of cognitive... Dissonance. Well, this is the kind of thing that drives people mad, living yes. in contradictions yes. in their minds, right? Yeah. Actually, and uh, uh, I guess you have to develop a, a sense of matter of human not humor not to go go yeah. start raving mad yeah. in the face of this, right? Yeah. He says, well, uh, the church is going to survive and Christ will win, and that's true. But again, you know, pastorally speaking, we're looking at these souls who are being imperiled by this, uh, who are scandalized by it who are scandalized by what the Freemasons are doing and scandalized by those who would oppose the Freemasons, but they're not doing. Mm -hmm. And um, they're, they're losing faith, hope, charity, and they're going off. And if they don't become Mormons, become atheists. But then Francis says, that's okay. Even yeah. as atheists, you, have, you can still get into heaven that way. Yep. Uh, it's about the only time Francis talks about heaven, anything beyond the world, this world. He talks about uh, apostates and blasphemers, and yes, they can be saved too. That's that's when Francis talks about heaven. Never talks about hell, of course. Um, so, you know, it, it would be interesting to put to him that question. I think I'd like to ask uh, Don Murr, uh, who's not a, not a bon vivant exactly, but he, he still actually likes the Dolce Vita. I'm sure he likes the. All of the uh, amenities of living in Rome and that kind of lifestyle. I'd like to ask him though. Well, what about the meantime? What about the souls being lost? Yeah. What 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 must we do for them? Yeah. And um, I think I think what he would say, but I'm only guessing. Well, they have to and practice the traditional faith. They they have to follow practice the traditional faith in its entirety. Uh, because I, I can vouch for the fact that the Novus Ordo and all that, you know, all of its uh, baggage <laughs> that comes with it 
is actually the product of Freemasonic enemies of the church meant to destroy souls. And ultimately, as they want to destroy the church. You know what this reminds me of, Tom? It reminds me of the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita. And Dr. Uh, Marshall talks about it in his book on... on, uh, Infiltration. On infiltration. Uh, But, of course, we've been talking about this for decades now. You know, we're well aware of it. I mean, Pope Pius IX, my goodness, in the middle of the 1800s, was... um, was already aware of this and was making, ordered it to be made known. I actually have some citations from that Masonic instruction to the adepts of Freemasonry in Italy back in the 1800s of how they were to infiltrate, infiltrate the church, get control of the papacy, and by that means actually uh, not just destroy the church, but even beyond that, co-opt the church, hijack it, and turn it into uh, an anti-church, turn it into the anti-church, the church of world revolution, according to the ideals of masonry. I mean, one can can read the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita uh, and read the plan there. If I were to start reading that now, that would probably take another 10 minutes. Someday, I think we should return to that and actually read that, or we should post it, a link to it on our What Catholics Believe site, so people can go and read it for themselves. But what what, uh, Don Murr is describing here is the fulfillment of the instruction of the Freemasonic leader to his uh, Masonic adepts in Italy back in the early 1800s. This is exactly what he said we have to set out to do. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know, uh, if you recall, not long ago in a program, uh, the, the name Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen came up, and we had a, a viewer who sent us a statement that uh, Archbishop Sh- uh, that Bishop Sheen at the time had been informed by one of his um, clients <clears throat> Uh, he'd gotten reliable information that Marxists had infiltrated the Catholic clergy. And there were actually Marxist agents at work in the Vatican, right? And that Archbishop Sheen gave the advice to that person, take that information to the authorities in the church, but don't make it public, right? And they were faulting Bishop Sheen for that. Back in that time, the 40s and 50s, one, I think, would have had the expectation, well, yes, take it to the authorities, and they will handle it, yeah. okay? But don't scandalize the whole world by saying, oh, look, there are Marxists in the Vatican. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily blame Archbishop Sheen as though he was trying to cover something up. Yeah. I think he did expect that it would be taken care of. Yeah. But we see the standard um, word about this infiltration going on, like all during this time, and it coincides very well with what Our Lady said at Fatima, too. Um, Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, and, and you know that this applying to the Church, too, with its modernism that Pius X was fighting against. Um, by the way, there, there are some, a couple of notes that I thought might um, be of interest. I, I was um, walking with Archbishop Lefebvre, on the cobblestones um, and Oyster Bay Cove. <clears throat> the, the cobblestones there were 
supposedly, I believe this is true, brought from the courtyard in England where Mary, Queen of Scots, was put to death, that she actually walked over those cobblestones to her death, which gives them a certain kind of significance, a symbolic significance. Well, <clears throat> I was walking with Archbishop Feb in 1979, uh, there in that uh, little uh, uh, area, and um, <clears throat> I asked Monsignor Lefebvre what he expected from John Paul I. Remember, John Paul I was just named at that time, so he's brand new. <clears throat> And I don't know that the name Albino Luciani really meant much to anyone. But I asked Archbishop Lefebvre what he, what he thought it, uh, to expect from him. And I, his answer was very telling. In fact, as you can see, I haven't forgotten it to this day. He said, he said Paul VI named certain priests to be the leaders of the Catholic hierarchy in their countries. And he mentioned Lekai was named by Paul VI to lead the church in Hungary. And Lekai was a Kreta de la Paix. My accent is very good, but he was a peace priest. In other words, somebody who would accommodate and work with the communists. Another, he said, was Tomaszek. Tomaszek was named by Paul VI to lead the church hierarchy of the church in Czechoslovakia. And he was a peace priest. And a third, named by Paul VI, to actually lead the hierarchy in his country, was Wojtyla, Wojtyla in Poland, a peace priest. Actually, um, it, it wasn't, I, I beg your pardon, I, I have to retract what I said. It wasn't about Luciani, uh, Luciano, um, Luciani. It wasn't Albino Luciani. It was after his death and the election of, of Paul, John Paul II. Yeah. It was John Paul II in 1969. I was asking him about that. Boitia. And um, he was just named, he took the name John Paul II. And I asked Archbishop Lefebvre what he thought we could expect from him. Um, because, you know, we, we were being told he was a great conservative. Yeah. But that was what Archbishop Lefebvre told me. He said he was one of those three peace priests that he could name, Lekai, Tomaszek, and Wojtyla, who were actually known to accommodate the communists. In fact, I was reading a report on uh, how it was uh, that uh, like Cardinal Wyszynski in Poland could be treated so badly. And Wojtyla was promoted and really had no problem sailing through. Um, in, uh, in Poland, and uh, the article actually said that he, that Colonel, that at that time Archbishop Wojtyla actually said that he avoided uh, having trouble with the communists because he, he avoided getting onto the subject of good versus evil. Okay. That's what you want from a Catholic Cardinal. Well, uh, not, not what I would expect. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, that clued me in that, that Monsignor Lefebvre did not expect anything good to come from John Paul II there. Um, in any case, um, but what the Freemasons want to do, what they wanted to do here was clearly to make the Vatican and the Catholic Church 
basically a wholly owned subsidiary of international Freemasonry. And it seems that this is what they've done with the New Order Church, the Church of Vatican II, the church that was uh, birthed at Vatican II, seems to be this wholly owned subsidiary of international Freemasonry with its Novus Ordo and all the rest that they've that they've created for that. It's it's a Freemasonic product. And when you see Francis in um, in Canada, uh, you hear him apologizing for crimes that never happened, right? Um, for which there's absolutely no evidence, uh, for which there's much evidence to the contrary. And he's apologizing for this from the, for the real Catholic Church of old, with its real missionaries, and its real, um, real martyrs. And he's sitting there during a smudge seminar ceremony, right? As the shaman, uh, the indigenous shaman, is invoking the spirits to come. And Francis, they, 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 they were all sitting there, Francis and his prelates, all sitting there with their hands over their hearts. I mean, what does that tell you? They were instructed to put your hands over your hearts to show your participation in the ceremony. And they're all sitting there like this. Actually, Francis uh, put his left hand, oddly enough. You know? But he's sitting there like this, very thoughtfully, as this shaman is uh, invoking these spirits from some spirit world. Uh, you read what the Catholic Church says about the first commandment, and you see Francis is not at all, not only a teacher of the faith, he doesn't profess the faith, he doesn't believe the faith. It's clear. He makes it very clear. And he's received accolade after accolade from the Masons throughout the whole world, as though they recognize him as, uh, as one of their own. And you know what? I think they're right. right. I wonder if his name was in that dossier. Where would, uh, well, uh, Gagnon would know. He's dead now, though. Passed away. But somewhere you have all of that information under lock and key, right? You can be sure they're not about to release it until, until they feel that they've succeeded yeah. in uh, crushing, crushing the church, the true church of Christ. Ultimately, though, you and I know that can't be done. What Father Moore says, what Don Moore says is true, that uh, obviously Christ has promised that he'll be with the church until the end of time. But the church can suffer great losses, and when the church loses, she loses souls, and that's the tragedy of it all. We recognize, of course, very well that our Lord Jesus Christ and his church will triumph. We know that. <clears throat> but that does not absolve us from the obligation to do everything we can to oppose the damnation of souls that is you know, being carried out daily through this new order produced by, not Catholics, but Freemasons, who have invaded the church and uh, have filled the sanctuary, right, as it were. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, Tom, I turn the floor over to you. Well, maybe, Father, we can bring the program full circle, and, uh, you know, we talked about the feast day of St. John Vianney today, and, uh, 
mentioning our Lord's Church, we're certainly very thankful that there are still in the world today traditional Catholic priests like yourself who continue to uh, carry on the work of the Church and justifying and sanctifying souls. So thank you very much for that, Father. Thank you for all that you do, and thanks for well, your time. Well, you're very welcome. Well, I, it's a privilege, and I, I thank God for putting up with me still. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to uh, being a priest at all, but especially today being a traditional Catholic priest, uh, one word that comes to mind is inadequate. <laughs> I think I think we, with St. John Vianney, actually, as a saint, he would certainly feel this in a very special way. Very, very inadequate for the tremendous um, dignity and power of the priesthood. We just feel totally, so inadequate. But our sufficiency is from our Lord. We know that. And uh, the priesthood is a very, very humbling vacation. Vocation, not a vacation. Uh, not at all. Uh, I mean, fathers tell me this when they have their children. It's very humbling. You know? And I think uh, they, they wouldn't be surprised to find out that priests experience the same. It can be humiliating at times. It certainly is humbling. Um, to think, um, you know, that when your voice is, you're, you are there speaking in the person of Christ at the altar, you're lending our Lord your voice <clears throat> to, to affect the sacraments, uh, the justification of souls from sin, the sanctification of souls by grace and sacraments. Um, that's a very humbling thing. You're lending our Lord your own hands. He's using those to accomplish his own purposes. We have to now raise those voices and use those hands to, Yes, in defense of the faith, in defense of the church, in defense of the souls who are endangered um, by this malicious plot and their murderers in the 33rd degree. Right? So. Well, Father, God bless you. Thanks for being here today. Well, thanks, Tom. Appreciate your time. You thanks, too. thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.